Hey, I'm Will Laviste. He's Eric Laville. You're tuned in to Laviste and Claville, where we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective. So let's get right to this show. And this show, we're going to be starting our series around the black tax education. We're in the commencement season where a lot of graduates at all different levels are getting on to the next level and getting out there and starting their lives. And I particularly want to give a shout out to all the graduates, HBCUs, but particularly my undergrad alma mater, the Lincoln University of Pennsylvania, which on this day that we're recording this uh, broadcast, uh, they had their um, their commencement for the for 2020 and 2021. Yesterday actually uh, was 2020, and then today 2021 because obviously for the pandemic. But it just gets you the understanding of how important education is and what it means to us culturally as a community and what it just means in general to be able to move forward and have upward mobility in this society. So, Claville, let's, you know, talk a little bit about all the, you know, different levels we're going to try to hit um, on doing this series, the Black Tax Education. Yeah. So, well, again, I like to also say congratulations to all the graduates who have graduated this season of course, many universities were holding double graduations for 2020. That's right. So 2021, because we know the pandemic uh, pretty much provided uh, a very solemn end uh, to everyone's year, academic year, and especially our seniors that graduated. So congratulations to my alma mater, Southern University A&M College and Southern University Law Center, and also where I'm at, where I hail now from the Spartan Nation, Norfolk State University. Uh, the Black Tax series that, that we're discussing uh, at LaVisa and Claville, as we delve into education, we understand that when we as African Americans venture into anything that is going to better us in America, is going to better ourselves, better our communities, better our yeah. friends, generations to come, there's an extra added tax to it. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's what it's. That's. That, that's the reality. That's what happens. It is reality. And, you know, one thing that 2020 has shown us is that all these things that we've been talking about as African-Americans in our stories and also showing evidence, finally, the pandemic un- unveiled it all. It's right, like, exacerbated it. I'm, exacerbated, accelerated. I mean, it really laid it there, you know, the disparities that are out here. And education is certainly one of them. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, just... Uh, we're talking about education, but I just want to make this um, uh, comment by uh, Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci testified and said we have to understand that the disparities in healthcare and the disparities in the vaccine was exposed and due mm. to racism. This came out of Dr. Fauci's own mouth at a testimony on Capitol Hill. He was not uh, pressured to say that. He didn't have to say it. From his observation as a scientist, as a researcher, which we know scientists and researchers follow the evidence. Absolutely. You know, so it shows that racism was uh, indeed the cause of these health disparities. So with that being a point, Will, you know, it's the same as it relates to education. So let's take a look at higher ed. Uh, In higher ed, we're talking about graduation. Many times... African-Americans have to take out more loans to pay for college 
than our white counterparts. Absolutely. My my God, my God, my, my God. <laughs> I, I, I think. And again, we still haven't gotten student loan debt relief yet, but go ahead. We still, have, we still haven't gotten the relief. Um, Biden is still, you know, sort of hemming and hawing about really uh, putting forth a relief package that would really make an impact. I think he's been talking about, what, 10 or maybe 15 grand as no, opposed 10, to. No, no 10,000. Plus, ten, plus, yeah, yeah, that's right. As opposed to you know fifty thousand or a hundred thousand or somewhere around where the average is. I believe the average for a lot of students is somewhere around you know approaching thirty thousand in that range. So again, when you don't come from a legacy of wealth, as is the case for many African American families, because of the disparities, because of the discrimination, because of the being prevented from having opportunities to things like we've talked about before, home ownership, business ownership of investing in the market, you end up in a situation where in order to finance your education, you've got to go and take out loans. So we go, we get loans, we come out, like many of the students coming out today, overburdened with a lot of loan debt, which now begins to impact your decisions when it comes to what type of job you can you can get to really advance your career. Can you get a car? Are you going to be able to buy a home? All of these kinds of things. So you, yeah, we're going to delve into that and talk about you know, higher ed and, and this, this student loan situation, which is totally out of control. Absolutely. And when we talk about student loan, I mean, you hit the nail on the head as it relates to impacting your future decisions. Right. You know, and when we talk about student loans, we're also looking at not just government loans, but we're looking at private loans and how mm. the private loan industry is really taking advantage of individuals who have to rely upon those loans. So the question becomes, if a school outpaces the amount of federal guaranteed loans, right. is it pushing too high? Or are the federal student loan programs outdated? And should, of course, follow where tuition goes. So there is that discussion there. So in addition to the black tax and we're looking at student loans as as relates to education, also look at the type of degrees. Now, many times we're told, Will, that you have to get this degree uh, in order to uh, be applied for this job or to be uh, considered for this job. Right, right. Many times... Many African-Americans are going back, getting advanced degrees just to get the same job that their white counterparts have with a bachelor's degree. Which you hit on a point of oftentimes, again, because education was often denied us, our parents instilled in us oftentimes education is a creed, the, the key Absolutely. to liberation, upward mobility. We, in our particular generation, you know, being Gen Xers and and baby boomers and the next generation, well, all of the, we've been encouraged to get education to the point where a lot of times we are overeducated. Yeah. So we we over rely on education. And then a lot of times you come out with all of these additional degrees. And I see two things have happened. The time that you spent putting all this energy getting that degree. It could have been spent in many cases uh, putting that energy into wealth building 
or yeah. building a business or building Absolutely. something that's really going to accumulate wealth, right? Oftentimes, so you put the energy into getting the degree. Then when you get the degree, uh, you still oftentimes may not be looking at a high enough paying job that can offset the cost of right. getting the degree, as we just talked about student loans. Then there's another element that happens in there. Sometimes, oftentimes, you get these degrees, and now you're thinking that, well, I did what I was supposed to do to get these degrees, be certified, be educated, be legitimized. Uh-huh. And then you find out oftentimes that now people consider you to be overqualified or people right. start to use that as an excuse. Now you are someone to be feared because now you have you have all these different degrees. And so you hear things like it. I'm sure that you experience this as I have, uh, Eric, folks saying, oh, OK, so I got to tell you doctor now. Right. Uh, oh, so and I'm like, well, wait a minute. Well, I, I did earn it, right? I mean, this this is what I was supposed to do, right? It, would you have preferred that I went and caught a case and ended up in yeah. prison? Is that? I mean, so you start to get those kinds of comments. So now you become overqualified, and now right. you know you're someone to be you're someone to be feared. And unfortunately, that happens oftentimes. It's not just with white America; it happens with Black America. You find yourself in a situation with your own folks, your own people, and now you're someone to be, you know, you're someone to be feared. You're someone to be knocked down. Right. You know, I, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember I, I was at church and the church I, I, I went to in college and one of, one of the brothers looked at me and said, uh, I guess I got to give you your respect now. I said, well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not you gotta, you gotta know. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, so so again, people harbor these animosities, like you said. It's just not in um, outside of our community, but it's also in our community. Mm-hmm. But the difference with it being outside of our community is that these are the, this is the, these are the communities that can open up opportunities and close opportunities. Right. So you mentioned being overeducated. We see where. We're told, oh, as I said before, in order to uh, be considered for this position, you got to get this degree or experience. Hmm. So I can't get experience if I can't get uh, be considered. So let me get the degree because you'll see three to five years experience or a master's degree or a degree in this area. So many African-Americans, because those doors are closed, they end up going to get a advanced an, an, an advanced degree. But then you come back and they say, oh, well, like you say, you're overqualified. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's continuing to move the mark. And I'll, I'll give this example. I'll use this example that's in, that we see in the NFL. You know, you have African-American coaches that want to break into coaching. Right. And they're told, oh, well, you need to get this experience as a position coach, right? So you right. get onto a staff where you're able to work as a position coach, running backs coach, wide receiver coach, Offensive line, defensive line, tight end, whatever the case may be, special teams. Right. Then they say, well, uh, you don't have enough experience at a uh, coordinator position. So now you become offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, you're calling the shots and so forth. Right. And they say, well, oh, I know you're an offensive coordinator of the highest scoring offense in the history of the NFL. And I know you won a Super Bowl, but did you call all the plays? Right. Mm, mm. <laughs> It's like it's like how many times are you gonna move the goalposts on me? How exactly. Many times, how, how many exactly. times are you gonna move it? But then, but then you have your white counterparts who are now getting opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, 
and leaving a a worse opportunity, getting better opportunities after recording a worse record than right. you than they came into. In other words, getting hired up. <laughs> getting hired up, even though you're a loser, saying, "Oh, he's a great guy," or he's he just needs the right, uh, right. situation to be right. successful. Well, what about us? We need a situation. And when we get into those situations, and let's just say we don't uh, end up winning as much as we should, we should also get another opportunity. The NBA has done it. Uh, You see Doc Rivers, I'll use him for an example, phenomenal coach, went to the Celtics, won a title, got hired with the Clippers, put them on the map. You and I remember the Clippers before. Uh, Oh, the the Clippers (laughs) going all the way back to – where were they? Weren't they in Kansas City at what time? Or they were, I mean, they were in Buffalo. I mean, I'm man, I'm starting to date myself. I mean, they, they oh, were yeah. just different fran- they were just different franchises that just and, and changed their names over the year that just never did well. But but yeah. you're right. Here, here he comes and he actually um he actually puts them on the map. He actually has some success with them. Absolutely. And then uh, and, and then and again he, uh, immediately he's hired up. Right. He's let go like the next day. You know, right. Philadelphia. So these are the opportunities when we talk about education that we look and say, hey, we just simply need the opportunity and the support in order to get to achieve what we need, what we, uh, need to achieve. The, the, the other part of education, the black tax, when we take a look at higher ed, we want to take a look at the uh, uh, pro- professorships. Right. Now, keep, keep in mind, now, Will, both, both of you and I are HBCU undergraduate graduates, but we also are PWI graduates of right. graduate degrees. Right, University of Arizona Masters, Old Dominion University doctorates. I got to give a shout out; those are my other alma maters. Absolutely, you know that I love. Right, you know my graduate school alma mater is Louisiana State University, also known as LSU, and in those programs, we see that in a lot of those schools you only have one black professor. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, if you look at a law school and you have a, a what they call top tier law schools, which I don't like, like the tier ranking. But if you look very closely, you'll see a lot of the white professors who are there. They're non-black. Mm-hmm. A lot of white professors went to the state university of that particular school. Right. And they simply have, you know, their uh, their undergraduate and law degree and their professors. If you look at the black professors, they usually have Ivy League law degrees. Really? As a matter of fact, when I was looking at law schools and considering law schools, of course, I, you know, I put the law schools in my area on, on the uh, on the list. So I went to go sit in the class over at LSU Law School. And they sent me in the class of the only black law professor there. Really? At the university undergrad. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Whose mom was the uh, <laughs> who was was the history one of the history professors there, hmm. and he went to Yale to get his law degree. Hmm. He came back and he's a professor at LSU. Was a professor at LSU at the time. He was the only black professor. There. Everyone else went to like LSU, got their law degree, whatever the case may be. He went to Yale, and he was the only black professor at that time there for doc, what we call doctrinal courses. And right. I'm sitting in this class, and I'm sitting with, you know, one of my former classmates who graduated a year before me, and we're sitting at the top of the class. There's 125 students in there in lecture hall. There's like three blacks in, in the class. Right. Not including me. I think I made four. But, but you're looking around, and you're saying, these are the games that are being played, right? 
And that's and that's the black tax when we talk about being able to get access to these institutions with a lot of resources and in order to teach uh, students uh, and, and also to teach African-American students. Keep in mind, a lot of these institutions do, they hire that black professor and they expect that black professor to publish, to research, to go to conferences, right, right. which is part of tenure. But they also tax them to be the special advisor and only advisor for black students, which right. they get compensated for. Right. So therefore, you have another black tax. Yeah, because, you know, it it's very similar to oftentimes what happens in you know, my profession that I spent 20, you know, almost 20 years, well, 20 plus years in journalism. Wow. And as a black journalist, again, you are also expected to address, and you want to on one level, you want to address those issues that particularly impact your community. But you don't want to be pigeonholed only into those issues that impact your community. You want the freedom to really be able to explore all of your interests. And so that is something that happens. Again, as as you are educated, because of who you are, you often get perceived and you get pigeonholed. You could get pigeonholed or you could get um, directed into a particular area that limits the full scope of what you would like to do. Now, again, so that's a dynamic that happens. As an educated African-American, you absolutely, many of us, I know I do, I'm sure, and I know that you do, knowing you well, we absolutely want to do work that particularly benefits our community. Absolutely. But you also want to do work that benefits all community. You want that full scope to be able to be all in touch in all kinds of areas that, that you can. Just like your white counterparts have that freedom to do that. So you still run the, the, the issue of not being seen fully whole, fully as a full scholar. You can run that risk. That can be a tax that comes along with it. Um, we're also going to be talking about K through 12. You know, one of the issues that is very prominent and that the pandemic again brought out, you know, it was the big issue of children not in school. What is going to happen with children missing school, falling behind all of these other uh, issues that can really impact a child's intellectual development? We know there's a correlation between education at a young age Absolutely. and mastering certain skills. And there's a correlation that failure to master certain skills can easily put you in that uh, uh, crib to, to prison pipeline. So the pandemic has really exacerbated that. One of the big issues for African-American children, studies have shown, is that oftentimes lower expectations are put upon African-American children yeah. by teachers who in many of these public school systems are majority white. Yeah. So here we all know how our teachers, certain teachers we can point to who really inspired us, who really challenged us to be uh, everything that we could be to reach our right. potential. You sitting in a classroom as a child with a teacher who has low expectations of you, oftentimes children 
they're going to do what children do. They're going to they're going to they're going to gravitate and perform to those expectations. They want to have fun. They want to be with their their friends. They're they're not thinking about all of the the importance of all of the intellectual development and, and the challenges here for them and how it is going to impact how they develop. So if you got your child in a classroom with a teacher that has low expectations, that also oftentimes is going to lead to lower results. And we see that happening with black children all the time. Well, you're exactly right. You know, there's a lot of, lot of issues that have been, again, the pandemic has shown us this there, you know, the pandemic was terrible, absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. But if there was any good that came out of it, and it's still terrible, it's still here with us, and it may and it may creep back on, it may it may yeah. pull us back into another lockdown situation. We don't know. <laughs> well, but let's hope let's hope we don't get there. Yeah. If we and listen, if we had that much trouble, you know, getting people to wear a mask, which is common sense, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you, listen, don't even get me started. We're we're staying on black tax with the education, <laughs> but. But we're, if, if, if we're looking at what the pandemic uncovered, mm-hmm. there's, there, there's no more excuse for us not to address these issues. Our, in education, and I, I always take the disposition, my purpose as an educator is not to make things more complex, right. make the most, most complex things more simplistic, exactly. and also to give you not just the tools, but the encouragement in order to be able to understand so right. that you can now uh, take the information and what you've learned and use it for your benefit. Right. Apply it and, can, and continue to seek information on your own. Be, be uh, autodidactic. Yes, absolutely. You know, and when we start to lecture uh, parents and communities to say, oh, you should have this and you should have that. Hmm. What a pandemic showed is that our communities are working to and really, if you're working two jobs, you're also doing a gig job, okay, mm. part-time, just to make what the unemployment benefits was given, were, were being allowed during right. the pandemic. So they don't have the resources. Will, they don't have the resources to provide the internet capability. Listen, we had to pivot, you know, in, in our home. We had to pivot uh, to have four working areas so we had office spaces that were already here. We created a couple more. We were able to get the kids whatever they needed. Right. They able to give a call. We were able to increase our, our Wi-Fi, get the over the place, the whole nine. That all happened within one weekend. Right. Okay. So we were fortunate enough and had the resources to do that, to pivot to extracurricular activities from inside to outside. Where the team shut down, we were able to hire private instructors for them. Right. Uh, it's in tutors and in 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 the, the whole nine. But what happens to a family that doesn't have those resources and that? My that, point exactly. Even my that dexterity exactly. to think and say, "Hey, we've got to make this extra step for our children." If you you may you may think that this is what you want to do, but if you don't have the resources to actually execute it, I have it. I, absolutely. So, you know, with our schools, we have to ensure that we are providing the families. Right. resources that they need. And the families also understand that these resources are being provided. The other aspect of the education in K-12 is where we take a look at the, the tax base for our schools. 
we still, in many areas of our country, we still determine the level of education and resources in large part by the tax base around it. Hmm. So therefore, if you're in the area, and of course, these are considered various title schools where certain federal funds are allocated because they have, they're in areas that don't have the resources, the tax base, the companies, the real estate tax, and the like. Right. And of course, now you as an educator in an urban school district or a community that has uh, lacked those resources are now taxed to achieve a level of success and, and testing level in producing future leaders in meeting these marks without financial resources the tax can do it. Again, saying, uh, and then have the nerve, others have the nerve to turn around after they leave the community, hmm. after they suck the community dry, after they place stores in the community, but take the, the money out of the community, don't reinvest it right. in the community because they don't live in that community, to turn around and wag their fingers and say, look at you. Why can't you do X, Y, Z? My my question is, if you reverse that scenario and remove that tax base, remove those resources, remove those dollars that circulate over and over and over in your community, right? Would you achieve better? Yeah, and we know those of us who buy homes, whether we have children or not, one of the things that we look at in order to make school. a decision on buying home, what's the quality of schools? 100%. So, so 100%. when your schools in your neighborhood are not of that high quality, it becomes a disincentive for people who have resources, who could build up the tax base, who actually could contribute to the community in positive ways that benefit all everyone in the community, makes them less likely to want to come into that community. So Absolutely. these issues, what we're going to be doing in, in this series is connecting the dots and looking at how these issues really interact and how they really play out in people's lives in real ways. You know, oftentimes, again, you hear on these shows or you hear in the media talking points and people are just kind of repeating the same old tropes, the same old stereotypes. Absolutely. But what we want to do in this series is to really point out and pull in studies and point out and show how these dots connect and how they make real world impact on your life. And what are the kinds of things that we can actually do, like a solution you just brought up? What are the kinds of things that we can actually do to turn this thing around, to make for a better community for all our children and for our, our entire country? what we can really do to make a difference. Because we, we're all interconnected. That's another thing that the pandemic has shown. We're all interconnected and we need each other to circulate and to prove, improve um, our society in general. Well, I want to point out one more aspect of the Black tax in K-12. In K-12, when you go to various schools, and it's a, let's just say it's a school that's slightly integrated, right? Because we know that the code language for it's a good school means that it's not as integrated and right. wanted to be. Uh, but when you go to a school that's slightly integrated, the black teachers are also now taxed with as educating as they would their regular, their other counterparts, with getting test scores where they need to be in like their other counterparts, meeting meetings and conferences. 
but also the discipline of black students. And by the way, it's only black teachers are only seven percent in the country. Majority of teachers in the country, eight percent of them are white. So to your point, you you got a small percentage that's being overtaxed to address other issues, you know, as well that aren't are directly related to curriculum and education. And well, not just white, but they're also overwhelmingly white female as well. So now you have a perspective of our society being educated by white females. But that's another discussion from another... Right. It's not that, it's, it's not that there's something wrong with what white females at all. Absolutely. But when you say it, that over-representation, Absolutely. what is being missed when you don't have you don't have the balance? But take us on home. We're, running, we're, we're, we're coming towards the end of our hour. Well, yeah. our half hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, look, every time we start to get into a great discussion... You know, our time comes to an end. But again, we'd like to thank all of you who enjoy La Visa and Creville. We thank you for tuning in. For those of you that want to uh, tune in again, you can watch the rerun and or you can pass it on to a friend. You can like, share, follow us on Facebook, all of our social media, Instagram and Twitter. And also, we want to encourage you to not just like and share, but we also encourage you to ask questions. Absolutely. Give us comments. What do you like about Louise Cleveland? Let us know how we can improve it. I'd like to give a shout out to our producer, Ben Bailey, who does all That's of right. our production and our graphics. Hats off to him. Big and- Ben. Big Ben. <laughs> Absolutely. So until we meet again, to us, that's the way it is. See you next time.